Are you curious about life and the world around us? Shit, us too. Join our conversations on life, liberty, and the pursuit of anime, and everything in between. This is Alicia, Paul C, and welcome to Vi Curious. Okay, so we are recording again. <clears throat> so Welcome back. Welcome back. So we're speaking today with Dr. Akka, who is a, a general practitioner in South London. Hi. As well as my cousin. <laughs> so previously we were speaking about as far as um, the difference between the U.S. and the U.K. health system, as well as talking about diets and how diets can impact our overall health. So going further into health, let's deep go further into black health and speaking on black health, you have um, black women's health or women of African descent's health. So um, I, we previously spoke about this, but let's go back and speak on with our viewers again, or listeners. Um, do you know who James Marion Sims is? James Marion Sims. Now I had never heard of him in terms of, I would not have known his whole name. The only reason I know of Sims is because there is a Sims speculum. So lots of medical instruments have got names and you just assume that they're the name of whoever created them. So a, a speculum is a device that um, doctors use to look into the vagina. And there are two, there's quite a lot of different types, but the ones that are used most often is a Cusco speculum and a Sims speculum. So that was the first time that I had heard of the name Sims, but I didn't know the person behind the name until really quite recently, probably 2020. That's that's crazy to me. That's really cool though. But um he's he's um he's he's seen as in the US sense, I don't know about it in the UK, but he's seen as the 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 father of gynecology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I know that you were saying earlier in your introduction on the previous episode, you were saying that you you had a special your specialties in gynecology, correct? Yeah, well, during my training, a lot of GPs training, we do gynecology because we're going to be looking after women and babies in the future. So we all doctors will have had some time in gynecology. And so you're familiar with using the instruments. Um, so, yeah. So but in your gynecology training and in most of medical school training, you're not really taught about the history behind all of the things. So, yeah. So I probably know the history of my medical school and I know the famous alumni from my medical school um, but really the history of medicine in that sense I mean some people may have done a special study module on that but the, the people unless they were like great people who'd done something then the small people wouldn't have been known five years of vast curriculum I guess they don't feel that they have time to go through all of that that makes sense because that was several years ago um, when he was, I don't know if I would consider practicing, um, but it, it's been a significant time um, since he was relevant. And that is really interesting. I, I guess from someone who is not in the medical field, I would think that, you know, 
maybe it's from the U.S. standpoint versus the U.K. standpoint. Um, but I, I would assume because he's considered uh, the father of gynecology, if you were studying it, they would, you know, say, hey, this, uh, this practice was founded by this person and, and not necessarily just him. But I guess and what you're saying is that person has to be like significant or recent and the practices in which you're studying for them to mention it in a book or in a class or something like that? I feel like they, 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 sorry, cutting in there, but I feel like they don't mention him also because if they mention him, they also have to speak about all the atrocities he did. That he did, <laughs> yeah. Well, like, they, don't wanna, they don't want to talk about that. Because that's going to take a time, isn't it? So if you just yes. get told, this is the instrument that you called, that you use, this is called a Sims, you don't have to go into any of that history. And medicine has a dark history, I guess, no matter where you are in the world, there is, you know, how things have evolved and how things have come about has not always had the greatest of paths. Um, you know, I took my children to a museum, um, the Welcome Museum in central London, and on the top floor, there's a permanent exhibition on the history of medicine. And I just took them thinking, you know, they're going to learn something, we'll have a good time, they're going to be out of the house. And on the top floor, it had a collection of medical instruments. And they were things like forceps for delivering babies and speculums. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Doesn't it look, you know, interesting? My children were horrified. They're like, people grab babies out of people's stomachs with these things. They look barbaric. And to me, they're just everyday things that you kind of use. To them, they were like, this is crazy. <laughs> Who would use this? Like, hmm, doctors? <laughs> yeah. And you know, the, <laughs> the things that I've learned taking my children to the Royal College of Surgeons in London, you know, surgeons in the UK, they, if you needed something operated on, um, you would go to a barber because the barbers were the ones who had, you know, like strong stomachs. They would be the ones who would do bloodletting or they would do amputations because they had the tools to do it. People used really? to rob graves back in the day so they could have like a live, you know, a fresh body rather than one that started decaying so they could practice what they were going to do on or if they had prisoners or convicts, they would not use any anesthetic and they practice on them. And then as medicine started evolving a bit more and the physicians were the people who just didn't have to cut people open. They used their brain and their knowledge of how the body worked. And then there were the barber surgeons and the barber surgeons were the ones who were doing the amputations and things like that. But then they wanted to make it a... Uh, a more respectable profession. So instead of being barber surgeons, they developed the Royal College of Surgeons so that barbers could be barbers and cut people's hair and then more and more learned person who had actually practiced, who knows how they practiced on people, would be the surgeons. And that's where the surgical college developed from in the UK. So some really shady things would have happened a long time ago. And there's no excuse for that. Obviously, in this day and age, it was barbaric then. It's what happened. Mac James Marion Sims, what he did was barbaric. What were his peers doing? Were they doing the same thing as him? 
were they worse than him or were they just silent and didn't speak about about it or was that what was going on in the what is it the 1800s is that just how things were yeah because it was um right right prior to um like i think he was working from the 1840s to the 1860s that's when he was practicing Mm -hmm. i mean that actually gives like a really good perspective though because i mean in terms of being someone in the medical field, especially back in the 1800s, when it's time for you to operate or understand how the body works, or especially when you were saying people used to rob graves so they could have like a semi-fresh body to like look at. And I know now we have people who, you know, dedicate their body to science if they pass away or something like that, like give a brain or something for people to look at. But before then, how are you to know what the inside of a body looks like? How do you know how these nerves work and stuff like that and 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 how that affects somebody who is alive or someone who's dying or anything like that so I'm pretty sure that what we consider barbaric now because we have modern practices and we have anesthesia and and things that calm people down so they're still awake and you know they have like they keep people awake when they do like brain surgery and whatnot for their safety or something along those lines but back then it's just kind of like I don't know what I'm doing I have to kind of like pick around I have to scoop into somebody while they're alive or I have to you know give them coding so they'll be so relaxed that you know they don't realize that I'm sawing through their ankle Mm -hmm. and you know back then what was regulated who was regulating these people nowadays if I do something wrong I know that somebody is going to come down on me. We have regulation. We have a license. We have a fitness to practice. So if you do something wrong, if your doctor does something wrong, you can go and sue them. But back then, if someone died because of what you did, was that just the risk that they took? Just It was just part for the course, really, wasn't it? It's just what happens. It was kind of interesting, actually, with um, Jay Marion Sim. So I was watching... Um... Uh, I believe it was Vox video off of YouTube the other day. I'll also put that in the description of this video. I mean, this episode. But um, they were saying that during that period of time, anesthesia was actually available. So anesthesia became readily and openly available back in about 1860s. So during that period of time, he's most famous for operating on a woman called Anarka Westcott. So Anarka Westcott was a 17-year-old slave who had recently became pregnant. And due to this, she had, I don't know how to pronounce this correctly, a fistula? Yeah, fistula. Um, fistula, where it's like there's rips and tears in the vaginal and the anal cavity, I believe. Mm-hmm. Something so like that. An abnormal connection between two internal sites normally. Yes, good, correct. So um, what Marion Sims was doing was he was operating on this woman. He did 30 experimental operations on Westcott before finally closing up her fistula and tears. But during the procedures, he never used anesthesia on her. He could have used it. It was readily there for him to use, but he chose not to because there was a a misconception that Black women or Black slaves did not feel pain the same as um, Caucasians did at the time. So that that not feeling pain thing comes through, I think, to this day. And sometimes you you kind of think, if you're going to rationalise to yourself in your own head what you're doing, it's easier to say that person's subhuman, they're different from me, they don't feel any pain, so I don't need to, I'm not doing anything wrong. And I think, you know, 
that may still follow through to this day for some people um because how do you do such horrible things you know would he have worked on his child without any anesthetic right or his child is his equal and if you don't see people as equal you may not manage them in the same way as you would your wife your child your mother absolutely um i mean obviously back in the 1800s um sims and several other caucasian people didn't see clearly because there were slaves but they didn't see black people as human or equal so in his mind though he had the 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 necessary tools to make it you know painless for that black woman he decided not to because he just came in his head you know it just popped in his head like oh it's a slave i could do whatever i want because you know is basically a dog, maybe even lesser. So you're you're absolutely right. It's he just convinced himself like the people back in that time that were practicing and involved in slavery, which is, you know, just convincing yourself I am, you know, entitled and I'm the superior race. So these black people are just subjects. I can do whatever I want. So um, obviously it's not correct. And I think that there is a significant difference between what Sims did and the example that, you know, we were talking about as far as what do you do when you do not have those tools readily available? It's different when you need to study a, a patient or a body so you can, you know, basically have notes and further this the further medical research so that you can help people and people don't just die from tuberculosis or something like that. Those things are necessary. And those, those practices were necessary. I feel like when you didn't have the tools, but Sims had the tools to make that, you know, pain free. And he just decided not to, which would make him barbaric. Yes. I, I want to say that he um he used morphine or something afterwards. He didn't use anesthesia, but he gave her like morphine or um I forgot what medicine or drug they used back in the day. They gave her that to stop the pain, even though so she was in pain during all these experimental procedures, over 30 of them, but he gave her like morphine so she wouldn't complain about the pain, I guess, you know, after or the post-operation. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, she was a slave, so... But there's also money involved because anesthesia is not cheap. And I'm sure even back then it wasn't. So if you're going to carry on performing all the, if you're going to do research, however you're going to call it then, you want it to be as cost effective as possible, surely. So right. he may have just thought, I don't have to give her anything and it's going to cost me money to do it. There's also the fact that he wants to do it as well as possible because he's going to be the gynecologist who's looking after all of his clients' slaves. So the better he gets at his job, the less it costs him, the more money he makes. He was a doctor. He wasn't there doing it for his own health. He was doing it as a profession to make money at the end of the day, surely. Damn you, capitalism. <laughs> that was about to be, I was about to slip right into there. Like, oh, capitalism, <laughs> even back then. Um, so as far as like using Sims and what he did with uh, the slate, well, the black people, I don't, I mean, I know there were slaves, but. Enslaved women. Yeah, I'm just going to say the black women. Um, and how he treated the black people 
women that, you know, he had either under his care or just he was just sticking and poking and cutting on. Um, in thoughts of like how black women are treated now, because you did say that even now in our current time, for example, when using, hey, you know, black people have this tolerance of pain, like they don't feel pain. And if they do, it's not on the same spectrum as another race, just like white people or something like that. What what are your thoughts on like how that transition? Do you feel like there has been a transition? And, and this is coming from like someone who works in the medical field. Like, have you worked with anybody like from a different race who you saw with that mindset, like black people don't feel pain like that, you know, or, you know, I, I can honestly say I haven't, I haven't as with work colleagues, I haven't worked with anybody with that mentality that I'm aware of, but that may be because I live in London and it's a pretty multicultural medical field. I think with COVID coming out, probably 25% to, no, I think it's actually a lot more than that. I think it's coming up to about 45, 50% of the doctors that work in the NHS in London are from black or ethnic minorities. It's quite a large proportion in London. So most oh. of the medical teams that I work with in London are mixed. That isn't the same if you go a couple of miles down the road and outside of London by far, because the black doctors only probably make up, oh, it's a very small proportion of the population, of the doctor population, that probably isn't echoed in the actual UK population. Um, but being in the capital probably makes quite a big difference. As a patient, I my experience giving birth on one occasion, I think the caregiver that I came across probably didn't feel that I was in as much pain during labor as I felt that I was and wasn't listened to. So it's hard to kind of really answer that question. I think as a doctor, no, but maybe that's because when you're on a team and you're involved in that care, people have to check themselves and they also you know you're working with you, you your comrades um so everyone works together as a team but as a patient then I think yes I have had experience two experiences as a patient where people have gone oh you don't look like you're in any pain when you feel like you're dying do you think that that comes and again this is and I'm asking this from you being a doctor rather than a patient and then I mean you can answer it as a patient as well do you think that that has something to do with people like people on that team, on that medical team? So like a nurse or something like that, that's watching over a woman who just had a child or maybe just had a C-section and they're trying to do that mentally as far as like I, I've dealt with, you know, over 50 women I've helped over 50 women give birth and you know you're fine you're okay like I'm not going to give you medicine because I feel that you know is that something that is taught in the medical field like hey use your best determination on whether or not and I'm just using specific like childbirth like you and I know that you don't actually deliver children but 
do you feel like that's something that's taught in the medical field? Like, hey, use your best judgment as a person, as a nurse or as a doctor on whether or not a patient needs pain medicine or I don't think is that's there? Cool. I don't think we're taught that at all, but people are people and they will use what they think, won't they? I think they will use their own personal experience or their own views to make that decision. Because how do I know someone's in pain, really? Unless they're like screaming and crying. If my patient tells me I'm in agony, I've got back pain or whatever, I have to believe them. I can know that some people experience pain different from other people, but I don't know for that person, you know, someone might stub their toe and be in agony. Someone might have a bone broken in their back and they look like they're okay. They're just not complaining a lot. So I don't think we're taught how to work that out because we can't really know how that person's brain and body is dealing with the pain. We just have to take it on face value. That person says they're in a lot of pain and you have to deal with that. Now, I, I think for some people, they may they may have prejudgment about people and they may go, actually, you know, maybe they're just moaning. Maybe they're just complaining. That, right. I'm sure that happens. Yeah. I've, I've thought about that because I have a friend who she has five children and each birth that she the first one was twins and then the rest were single children and each time she's had a c-section and she just you know schedules them out and I went to visit her you know after she'd had her twins and then her first child so she had her daughter and um I guess a feeling that women who have C-sections is that there's for what she said is she felt like her scar was opening, like the, the incision. I, I hope I'm using the right term that they did. Like when they st- stitched her up, um, that it was like, she felt like she it was going to fall on the floor is the feeling that she described to the nurse who was coming in. And when we were in there and the nurse was saying, no, you're okay. You know, you're just feeling that way because she was just in there because from my understanding, when you have a C-section, um, there's a time that you have to sit and heal and they won't uh, release you until you either um, pass gas or like you actually have a bowel movement. Um, and, you know, I think she was in there for, it was their third day and she hadn't done any of that. And she was just like, you know, I need medicine, you know, it hurts. And, you know, the nurse was like, no, you're okay. Um, you're going to have to wait two hours or something like that. And I, my thought process was, are they just doing that based off of like a textbook amount of time? Or are they just making that determination based off of how many patients they've ever dealt with? Um, and if there were any prejudgments or prejudice that came in or come into their mind when they, you know, say those types of things. But I can't, if you've had analgesia already, so if you've had some kind of painkillers beforehand, there'll be a time that you have to wait so you don't overdose the patient. So like paracetamol, acetaminophen, you call it, you you can't have more than eight in 24 hours. So you're going to have that every six hours. So if you've given someone something, you can't then give them the same drug in a short time frame. So you're going to have to think about giving them something different if they're still in pain. But pain is pain. Caesarean sections, I always feel that we underestimate caesarean sections, a massive operation, really, because women, you know, just go home in a few days time and they're 
looking after their baby and their other children and stuff we treat it like it's not a big deal but somebody has opened you up opened up your uterus taken a baby out and stitched it back up again there is a risk that that cesarean section could come open um Mm -hmm. there's a risk with future pregnancies that that scar could rupture with the baby still inside it so we have to take it seriously so you know women just get on with having their cesarean and then they're lifting their baby in and out of the car seat they shouldn't be lifting anything really apart from their baby not a baby and a three kilo car seat they shouldn't be driving six weeks after they've had major surgery and scars do pop open sometimes it happens I've seen it happen Oh God, that just sounds horrible. Uh-uh. Yeah, that that happened to my mother. It, she didn't have a C section, I and and I don't remember the proper terms, but she um she gave birth to me vaginally, and um something happened. I think she was losing too much blood, and they had to do something. And um her doctor told her to just sit down, like don't get like she was home, and then her doctor had told her to just you know sit at home, just chill out. Um, and she she couldn't because she was too weak. She couldn't really lift me like that. Like my father had to, you know, carry me around. And she said that I think maybe the following maybe five days after she went somewhere to go shopping because she needed clothes because all of her clothes didn't fit. And um, she was just looking at a rack and then she felt wet and it was just blood. And um, I think it's just also important that you listen to what your, you know, your doctor tells you as well as, understand that giving birth is not just like you don't just pop a baby out and then like wait a couple like wait 24 hours and then get up and go back to work like no that's not how that works especially c-sections because you're literally open um that's a very serious procedure Mm -hmm. although i think i'm not sure i'm sure i've read in america that you only you do you you have like really short maternity leave time Oh yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. I believe it's um for the company that I'm employed with, it's if it's a natural birth, it's six weeks. And then if it's a cesarean, it's eight weeks. Wow. And then and then they want you to come back. And then your leave, like your maternity leave, doesn't start until you give birth. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, for example, if it's a person like a, a woman who is, you know, like if a, a woman has high blood pressure, they put her on bed rest. So like she, you literally just do not get out of that bed, you know, while you're pregnant um, unless, but her maternity leave wouldn't start even though she's put on bed rest and she can't get up and go to work. Um, she would still be considered like out of work. Um, she would, could take like a personal leave, but it wouldn't be considered paid until she actually gives birth. And then again, vaginally six weeks, cesarean eight, and it's just like two weeks. Did they ask? Did they ask you that like ahead of time? Like, oh, so how you popping this baby out? Like, does that question come up? How do they know? Um, in in that particular case, there is a a team that you provide your uh, medical information to because legally the company doesn't want to just pay you if you you're not if you didn't have a baby one. So you do have to prove that you had a child, and in that documentation, it does state how you delivered your child. I just feel like they make it so inhumane with everything. They do. I mean, like it's six weeks. I read somewhere where someone took a comparison of like, if you buy a puppy, the puppy has to be 12, 14 weeks, 
weeks. It's mm-hmm. 16 weeks around that, that amount of time before they will even consider weaning and taking the baby away from its mother. And here, this is an adult, like an adult woman. And it's just like six weeks, you should be good. Like, yeah, no problem. Like you should be adjusted, um, you know, and bonded with your child, find health care, find a, a routine to for you. And if you have any other children, your baby, um, child care, um, if you're, you know, anything like that. And again, time to bond with your child. And then you should be back at work as normal. This feels really harsh. I mean, in the UK, you most women would take between six months and a year off with their baby. Like six <laughs> months and a year. That's but oof. but see, for for someone like myself, I haven't had children yet. Um, but my thought process is that, you know, when I have a child, I would like to take at least one to two years off with my child so I can like you have a fresh baby, like you have like this little itty bitty, you know, mm-hmm. squishy potato face thing that's just there. And it's just like you six weeks is absolutely not enough time to do anything or bond with your child or set up anything with your life or, you know, like you're taking care of a literal new human being. How is six weeks or eight weeks enough time? And I guess it's how how society values people. I mean, we need to go and live in a Scandinavian country where men and women get maternity leave and they get a long time that they can have off with their child. And the, the family unit is really preserved. Because, um, yeah, how can you go back after such a short amount of time? I, yeah, I can't even start to think about how do you find a childcare provider? How do you carry on breastfeeding and things exactly. like that when you're putting your baby exactly. in childcare at six weeks? I think it was but, Sweden, isn't it? Isn't Sweden the one that has like the, the father and the mother both get maternity and paternity leave? They get, I yeah. think it totals like six months or each of them get six months each. It's like yeah. a good amount of months. And it's like, oh, we don't get that at all. You go to so, work the next day. <laughs> yeah, so in the UK, when you said um, like you get six months up to a year, as far as with like your employer, are they paying you for that time as well or is it unpaid? Um, some of it will be paid and some of it will be unpaid. Um, okay. If So that will depend on who you work for. Some people will pay six, uh, like six weeks at full pay and then... Mm-hmm some of the time at half pay, but the government will pay you a maternity allowance as well. So kind of maternity pay, which is a couple of hundred pounds a month, maybe a hundred and something pounds a week, I think it was. So you'll get that for nine months, I think. But then you will be allowed to stay off work for one whole year. You won't get paid for the rest of it, but they have to keep your job for you. So basically job security for an entire year. Yes. Oh, yeah. that sounds beautiful. Yeah, um, we definitely don't. <laughs> and the company that I work in, they don't have that. I believe that they have um, job security. Well, the, the pay for um, maternity is, again, six weeks to eight weeks, depending on the type of birth that you have. You have to wait until you actually have the baby. And then your job security is for 12 weeks. Um, and that's it. Uh, they, they do have additional time that they will allow you to like, it's called baby bonding time. Um, but 
it's unpaid as well um but after those 12 weeks legally the the company can say hey we've given up your position so you know come yeah. get your box like leave There's your baby in the car with the windows them. down and come get your items from your desk oh. There's too many stipulations when it comes to stuff like that. And I feel like kind of it leads back into how like we have like Jay Marion Sims, who he's the father of gynecology, but he was a white man <laughs> experimenting mm-hmm. on a black woman. So a lot of times you're getting these perspectives, like maybe your company, their HR policy, it might be coming from a man's perspective. Because even absolutely, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. say for me, for example, I, I personally didn't understand that, like after you guys spoke about it, I didn't understand that women need such a long amount of time to heal after a C-section. I thought, oh, maybe it's because how C-sections are like shown on TV or people talk about them, I'm always like, oh, okay, it's probably like a week or something. And then it's like, you'll just, you know, it might be you have to get your stitches changed. Like, it's like a, it's a very minimal or small procedure, but it's actually very large. I didn't know that. I mean, Paul, if you think about it, if people have their appendix out, they will be lucky if they're really up and back to work in two weeks the scar for an appendicectomy is tiny <laughs> and they're taking out something really tiny whipping it out and you still don't you people have their appendix out you don't expect them to just get up <laughs> in a couple of days time and go back to work so a right. baby that you've nurtured in your tummy and babies are like you know they take everything from that woman they are growing regardless of however the mum is doing they take all of your energy everything when you have your babies you'll go oh my god what was I doing before just sitting around doing nothing because Mm -hmm. all your time is going to be consumed with that child that you've grown that does not sleep (laughs) and does not know what it's doing you'll be up day and night so I don't know how really you're expected to go back to work in six weeks time yeah and Paul, you made a good um, comment about those policies being put in place. Um, a lot of times they probably are put in place by a man. I'm per- like 95% sure that they are put in place by men who have no idea um, the process it takes. I can't imagine a woman who's in who's fully in charge of that process saying, yeah, six weeks is just enough, um, especially if she had, you know, you don't need to have a child to understand um, that that's a very serious thing, not only to nurture and care for your child and get adjusted and acclimated, um, but God forbid the the woman has postpartum anything, postpartum depression, postpartum hair shedding, just all of that. Like that is having a child is a tolling process, very beautiful, but tolling at the same time physically and mentally um and to think that you can just chop it up into a few months is ridiculous and i do think that it is probably made by a man who doesn't know how you know to put a pad into underwear or something like that or how periods work or if he's if you say menstrual they get you know like oh let me talk about that yeah, those types of things. So that, that reminds me. Sorry, cutting in. That reminds me a little bit of Roe v. Wade. It's um a Supreme Court case where it's dealing about abortion rights for women. Mm-hmm. But during that period of time, of Roe v. Wade, all the men. It was on all the Supremes on the the Supreme Court were men. Were men. So when mm-hmm. they were speaking about it, they were like, oh, you know, when the woman. Oh, 
well, like they were so squeamish about like different things when it came to women's health. And it just shows like disparities that can cause from, okay, we don't have women here in this, in this medical industry, or we don't have black women here to know like, okay, black women deal with pain or deal with childbirth differently. And that's why, um, I don't know, we discussed it earlier. We were talking about, um, childbirth, black women are more likely to die in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I didn't know that. So, um, I don't know, um, Dr. Ucka, could you tell a little bit more about how um, death rates or why death rates are so high for Black women, at least in the United States? I don't know about for the UK, but in the United States, it's fairly high. And we're considered, um, quote unquote, first world uh, healthcare system. But why do you think it's so high for our, I guess, our community? Um, I mean, yeah, the United States, the UK, we're considered first world healthcare, but the United States figures on death rates in in women full stop is not great. Um, I think they're probably about 19 or 20 deaths per 100,000 births. And they're in the same states as Puerto Rico, Ukraine, Romania, places that we would consider developing countries. Yeah. So 19 per 100,000. I think in the US, I'm not sure if it's three or four times more, but black women are three or four times more likely to die than a white woman. In the UK, our rates are, I think, 17, no, about eight deaths per 100,000. So the US, about 20 19, 20 deaths per 100,000. But again, black women are four times more likely to die from childbirth in the UK than a white woman. So I heard the the US statistics first, and then I went on a talk um, just for training for update. And it was an Asian gynecologist. And she was like, these figures are shocking. And, you know, I they're unexpected and what what is the reasoning behind this is it because of institutionalized racism no one the figures don't really when i've had a look through they don't really explain what happened they because lots of the women english was their first language um Mm -hmm. they haven't really been able to pick out what may have been the causes of those deaths because in the UK if we're saying we work with a system where medicine is free for all everyone gets antenatal care whether that's with their general practitioner or the midwife that's provided from their hospital is it because people present late or is it because of confounding um, health issues like diabetes and high blood pressure Or is it just because people are racist and turn people away when they are in pain or they're laboring and no one believes them? We don't know. And we really need to pick through that because that's a lot of women that are dying unneededly. It's not like people's physiology, their makeup is different. This is women all over the world who are doing the same process of having a baby. So it's really shocking that the figures are the way they are. When the when you were in the talk and they were discussing and, and talking about the figures, did they, you know, discuss the reason behind death? So like cause of death was, you know, blood loss or cause of was is it always the same cause of death or are they different? 
it looks like there are multiple causes. Yeah, it looks okay. like there are lots of different causes. But, you know, having a baby, that process of having a baby, there's lots of people around. There's an anesthetist to give um, pain relief. There'll be the the obstetrician who's in charge. There'll be another junior doctor who's working in obstetrics as well. There'll be the midwives. Um, there's so many people involved in that process. You may only meet one of them, but the other people are in the background. And sometimes you wonder whether, you know, that midwife that you meet, I, I guess your midwife equivalent is an OBGYN nurse, but they would deliver the baby in the UK. You know, I've had experience as a patient with a midwife who I've thought, hmm, you aren't listening to me. You're not really hearing what I'm saying. Um, and if she were to turn me away and go, actually, I don't think you're far enough in labor and I go home and believe it, what happens then? And then you end up coming back. You don't know because there's so many different people. There's so many different facets to being on a busy labor ward where there's lots of women laboring. There's lots of things going on. There's shift changes because you're there for a while. You may be there for days. So I think the information really needs to be picked at and really gone through. But I'm not sure how much impetus there is from the powers that be to give people time to actually understand that. Because I think as with COVID, sometimes the information just isn't actually there for people to pick out. You know, in, in the UK, there's an argument raging that people are saying that black, they're using the code BAME, black and and minority ethnic groups but mm -hmm. say everyone's bma bm bame that includes black asian chinese everyone that's non-white we're not all the same entity are we oh my god we had a sorry to cut in there but we had a topic on this kind of about um yeah just recently about poc so in america we don't say you say bam b-a-m black mm -hmm. asian minority we say um POC, so person of color, or BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous person of color. But it's more or less just saying that anyone who's not white. Right. But anyone, that everyone does not have the same issues, so do they? So the lady who's from Bangladesh, does she have the same issues as the lady from Jamaica or the Black woman who's always been all of her life in London? It, they're not the same. <laughs> they don't no. have the same yeah, it's like lights, you know, like when little kids in school used to get lights and I went home scared once because this girl had lights. Her mom was like, you're black. You're like, you're not likely to get lights. Her hair, look at your hair, look at her hair. Our, our physiology, everything's completely different. <laughs> yes, it's very, it, I, I went through the same thing in first grade and it, they did the lights check and you're yeah. just like, oh my God, you know, we might have lights. And I went home and told my mother and my mother looked at me and she said, baby, you ain't got no lice. <laughs> you, you're not going to get lice. I was like, oh, but why? She's like, you're black. And I mean, she could have, you know, went into more detail and say, you know, you have grease in your hair and lice like clean hair, that type of thing. She, you're black. You don't get lice. But, you know, I don't know that it practices are put in place that, you know, say, hey, don't check the black children's hair or especially you know, <laughs> when they're children, like it. it's like you you don't want to seem as though you're excluding a set amount of children or something like that. So you, you check like, everybody's um, head. Pepper Ran, the TV show. Sorry, I'm going off topic really quick. Sorry. Okay, so Pepper Ran, there was one scene where the guy got lights and he was black. And I was like, how? 
how. I didn't understand that. But going back towards, so Black bodies and how we have a misconception. You were saying with um, BAM, Black Asian Minority? Yeah, BAM or BAME, Black Asian Minority Ethnic. I'm going to have to write this down and put it out on Twitter because I didn't know about this. I didn't know you guys had a a similar kind of, um, I guess, wording for minorities or everybody else but white people, which is weird. I didn't know that either. Um, so, so really, because the the rate of deaths with Black women of, of childbirth deaths are not the same, um, but are still high in the UK. So, you do you see any difference as far as the treatment with Black women in the UK, or do you, it versus the US, or do you feel like it's along the same lines as far as like? And what I'm saying is like the treatment that has been posted and is, you know, televised in the media itself, how they, you know, a lot of black women in the U.S. have come forward and say, you know, my doctors didn't listen. And this isn't specific to childbirth anymore. It's just, you know, I had a heart, you know, my chest was hurting and my doctor didn't really pay attention. She just told me, you know, take an aspirin and take a nap or something like that. Do you feel like that's similar in the U.K. or you guys may be take it a little more seriously? Um, I think that there probably are some similarities. I think it's really hard to say because doctors are individuals or the way the health system is set up, you need to have a voice. And if you don't have a voice, because I don't know, English is not your first language, you mm-hmm. need to make sure that you have an advocate. Otherwise, you're going to have to find that that caregiver who's going to listen to you and is going to be there for you so I think some of those issues may be you know I'm sure like with COVID there are issues of institutional racism on how people access things how people trust their care provider that will echo on both sides of the Atlantic also sorry I looked up a word I just want to make sure I use it in this episode I Atrophia, where it's intense fear of doctors. Did I say that right? Iatrophia. Atrophia. I'm, I'm going to look it up again. I'm going to put it on this. I'm going to like re-record it and I'm going to put this. But it's like, it was the word <laughs> intense fear of doctors. And I just always think about that when it comes to like, um, I feel like Black people have a somewhat intense fear of doctors. Like I when, when I was younger, this is why I don't like needles now. Um, I went in for a surgery and they didn't, the doctor didn't inject me with the, I guess the anesthesia or whatever they used to knock you out. The doc, oh, the, the, the IV, the, they didn't give me an IV. The doc, it was a nurse. And it was um, it was actually a soldier nurse or whatever. And he stuck me like six times. And it was like to the point where I'm like, okay, I need a doctor to come in to like do this for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kind of think that you, you were able to speak up. Yeah. So people need to be able to speak up and not stay silent because there's a lot of mistrust in different communities. There's lots of mistrust of healthcare professionals and is it because people are too afraid to speak up? Is it because they don't have someone to advocate for them? They don't know that they're entitled to a second opinion. In the UK, if you don't like it or you're not sure, you can say, do you know what? Can I have a second opinion? Can I talk to somebody else about that? Um, people don't want to offend people or they think that they may be doing the wrong thing. Heck, when I was 
pregnant and in labor, I'm a doctor. I can see when things don't look right and they're not going wrong. But my mum was a bit like, oh, but you can't look after yourself and the doctors know what they're doing. And I'm thinking, hey, I want to get my baby out. Okay, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure they're looking at this in the right way. And I need to make sure that my fears are addressed. I was able to articulate that, but some other people would not be able to articulate it. I'm able to say, hey, you know, if I was in your shoes and I could see what was going on now, I could be up all night worrying about this. Maybe you better do something about it now. Or I'm not really sure that this is okay. I feel uncomfortable with this. We have to, it's our body. We know how we feel. Nobody else can know how much pain we're in, what our worries and concerns are. And part of medicine, part of healthcare, is making sure that you look after that patient physically and emotionally. And we need to make sure that that's happening. Whether, you know, you've got a sore toe or you're having a heart attack, that person needs to look after you as a whole person. Absolutely. I I think that a lot of times people don't realize when when they're having something done medically, one, they could already be fearful of what is going on, what procedure they're going on, or the fact that they have to, you know, be around or be seen by a doctor. They're they're probably already fearful of what it could be. Um, or if you're having a child, it's just like, oh my goodness, you know, my, my child's coming into the world. And as a woman, it's just like, is it going to hurt? And those types of things, but not being able to know, like, like what you are able to say, like that it's your body. You do have authority over your body. Like someone can't just tell you like, Hey, you're going to do this, you know, and, and knowing what, rights and what you legally are entitled to do and say and you know consent to absolutely and it should be some joint decision making yes you're not a doctor so you don't know but that doctor is supposed to be able to explain exactly what's going to happen in a way that you can understand it and then you make a mutual decision about what you feel is the best for you exactly um I've had several times where I had gone to a piece with a general practitioner and um, explained an issue I was having and just, she kind of just was like, okay, well, you know, you're okay. Just don't, don't worry about it. Um, just go home. The, the example that I had, I went to my general practitioner. Um, she's actually a black woman and I was complaining about having chest problems. And she had, had advised me that, you know, she basically just told me that my bra fit was too tight or, you know, because of the size chest that I had, you know, that I should, um, think about getting a different bra. She confirmed that my bra fit properly and things like that, but she was just like, you know, I th- I just think you need another bra. And that bra was like, I I had it for four weeks. And if you ever purchased a bra, you know that you're not going to just buy a brand new bra <laughs> after you've gotten it and you've only had it for four weeks. Okay. Cause those things are like $60 if you have the good ones. But, um, I so much about women on this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> um, especially if you're like larger in the chest, it definitely is not something that you just go around and just buy um, 
frivolously. So um, I was, th that was it. That's all she had for me. She couldn't, she didn't, you know, listen to my chest. She didn't do anything other than kind of, you know, ask me to take my shirt off and just looked at me. Um, again, I am not a medical professional, so I, I'm not sure like what else was there because at that time I was just like, okay, I know my chest hurts and this is what you're telling me. So what did I do? I followed what my doctor told me to do. And I looked for a bra that, you know, didn't have wire and the woman in the department store, she was like, why are you looking for bras that don't have wire? And I, I explained to her what happened. Um, and she was like, well, it sounds like you may have, I might be saying this incorrectly, but like pleurisy. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and she and she she told me, she gave me my, um, without me telling her, she gave me the symptoms. And I was like, that's exactly what it feels like. And she said, well, you know, try getting a water bottle and, you know, put warm water in it and put it on that area. And she was like, I would suggest that you see someone else and explain it to them. And it was just baffling to me that I went to this doctor that I'm paying money out of pocket to, you know, you know, who told me to just get a new bra. You know, and and that's I guess what I think about when I when I or we talk about like black women not being listened to um, or heard, and you know it could have just been me. It could have been that I say, hey, you know, I don't think that's it. I think that it's something else. Could you do a little more research? You know, I could have did that. I could have, you know stood up for myself in theory, I guess I would say, and say, hey, can you research this a little bit more? You, you know, but you don't want to, I wouldn't want to be rude to someone who is still providing this service, but still, you know, you want to be as courteous as possible. And, you know, you don't, she's overrun with patients and things like that. But that's my thought when I think about, you know, I'm telling you about this thing and you're just kind of like giving me a whatever kind of answer for me to kind of figure it out on my own you were getting dismissed from your doctor really quick question right. you said the sales clerk was at the bra shop was the one who told you about your that ailment yes so the doctor didn't know but the sales exactly. clerk exactly this this tiny tiny little woman and she was a she was a black woman as well but she was like oh that sounds like pleurisy you know like it normally goes away what she said is that it normally goes away on its own and i did i tried the water bottle thing for a while and i don't have the chest problem anymore so yeah and it really upset me but um but i think what you're saying is right alicia that you you know, we have to make a choice. And I guess sometimes when you go to see your doctor, if you're going, you have to kind of sound them out and pick the mm -hmm. care provider that you feel is going to listen to your ideas, listen to your concerns and listen to your expectations of what you expect them to do. Because at the end of the day, they're getting paid to provide a service. And you may be going with something quite trivial, you may be going with something really serious, but unless you pick that person who you can trust, you because you don't know at the time whether it's really serious or not. So right. I would say like, you know, I could take my, I, I don't use the doctors very often because I'm a doctor, but we're not meant to look after our own family. So 
I could take my kids to the doctor, but I do very rarely because I don't need to. But I need to have a doctor where I think my husband, who's non-medical, should be able to take the children and be able to get an answer that is reasonable. So I've left lots of doctor's surgeries because I thought, actually, if I wasn't around and it was only my husband taking the children, would I get the care that I expect to get would I be happy with this is that doctor actually really looking into what my ideas are concerns about what may be going on what my expectations are of what will happen next and if that's no then unfortunately you need to find another doctor right and um I'm not put placing blame or anything like that a lot of people don't know that you know this was a doctor that I had when I was in high school um and she gave me like my first pap smear like the whole deal and i i've been i had been because i don't go to her anymore obviously but i'd been going to her for years and i i it, it never dawned on me it, and i mean it, it's you know your own research and your own ability to you know educate yourself but it i had no idea that you know you just go to another doctor you know a lot of people just kind of sit and accept what they're receiving um medically and otherwise and other areas as well but you know specific to what we're talking about a lot of people don't know like you know what this doctor is a quack i'm going somewhere else you know mm-hmm. it's just like well my doctor told me to do this and they went to school they have you know the the license and you know the degrees on the wall so they must know what they're talking about you know I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of my job as a general practitioner, that I'm in one place and I've been in my current practice for about eight years. So I get to know my patients. That's why I became a GP rather than being in hospital and people being in and out and I never know what happens in their lives again. So you build a relationship. Some people may come to me and go, oh, I don't get Dr. Rooker. I'm going to go and see somebody else in the practice. That's fine because you're building a personal relationship with somebody. So when I see somebody who I know quite well, sometimes you might not even need to look at them to go, actually, there's something really wrong with you. What's mm-hmm. the problem? Um, because we have we have that you know, that's part of our job to build that relationship. And people can pick and choose depending on how they get, how well they get on with that person. And I think you do need, because some people, you know, men might not want to come to see a female doctor about men's problems. You need to have that flexibility to have other people around you. You know, for me, I want to work with like-minded doctors. So the doctors that I work with, I would definitely take my child to see any of them. And I'm hoping that we provide a service where people are happy to see different ones of a different doctors or stick with the same doctor or if I'm not there and they always see me they'll go oh I'll see that other person as a as a alternative because I can be happy with them as well absolutely I like that um and I, I again I didn't learn until I was older that hey you know I do have the ability to say you know what First of all, you know, give the doctor a chance, depending on if you want to, you know, and speak up for yourself. Um, But if not, just knowing that you have options. So with that being said, do you for and I would say this was coming off as for black women, but I would just say black people in general. Do you what 
what tips or recommendations, like a mixture of both, would you have for our Black people who are seeking or receiving medical treatment? Um, I think that people should do their research and really, if they're going for something, like, you know, think about what it may be. I mean, it drives doctors a bit crazy when people go, oh, I read on Google that this, but actually (laughs) it is good for you to have a little bit of an idea or have in your head, what do you think is going on? What are you worried about? Because like your example that you said of going and having this pain when you went Mm -hmm. to see the doctor, you may have been concerned that it was something else and you Mm -hmm. need to spit out, oh my God, I'm worried that it could be my heart. It could be something um, because I read this. That's fine because then it's my job to go, actually, I don't think it's your heart because of this, this and this. So have try and have some kind of idea of what you think may be going on, just what your worries are so that we can start investigating that. Because when you go and sometimes patients are really quite vague and say, oh, I'd just like some blood tests. But what are the blood tests for? Why do you need blood tests? I want to know what's going on with you, what the symptoms are. That's what we went to medical school for, to kind of work it out. So patients need to be their own advocate and say, this is what I'm feeling. This is what my head is making me worry about because I Google doctored and it had like, I'm dying of cancer. What do Mm -hmm. you think about (laughs) it? Okay, I, I like that answer. Like, um, yeah, I really agree with that. I agree with that as well. When it comes, um, I guess, the doctor, like, I guess, finding out. I don't know. It's kind of weird for me also when it comes to dealing with doctors, though, because it's like, okay, how are you feeling? And they have like a one to 10, like scale. And I'm like, I guess I'm a six. I don't know. But I feel like an eight on a good day. But you feel different on different days. You could wake up and feel rubbish, and then in half an hour later, you could feel great. So I don't I know how. There's also times where I'm like, I don't want to feel like a like I'm weak. You know, I don't want to come off like I'm complaining. You know, I don't. I want, that's my problem when it comes to doctor. I don't want to feel like I'm complaining. Like even if it hurts me sometimes, like oh, it's okay. You know. I think I'm that's an issue in that's itself. Issue. That. Yeah, of course it is. First of all, it's enough that it brought you to the doctor and you should never try to, and this is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're going to a doctor and you're like, oh, well, I would tell them about this, but no, it's okay. You shouldn't do that because then your doctors, you're not being truthful with them and they won't know, you know, if you're withholding information, they can't properly diagnose you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it should be a safe space where you feel like you can tell them everything. It's the doctor's job to sift that everything that you've told them to go, actually, that's nothing. You don't need to worry about that. Because often what happens to us is that people come with lots of stuff that is really quite trivial. And then as they're going out of the door, they go, oh, by the way, doctor, and drop a bombshell. And you're thinking... (laughs) You should have told me that ages ago. Please, why did you leave it? And then you've spent 10 minutes talking about nothing. And then the very last thing, you're like, "Uh uh-uh, come back, sit down, because we need to go through this again. Um, So really, you need to find a healthcare provider that you can just spill things to and say, this is what I'm worried about. What do we do? What is your opinion on this? How can we move forward? And you shouldn't be afraid to do that. 
Okay, I have one more question before we end the segment. So, as a black doctor, I, we, we we kept talking how you deal with like just people in general. But do you ever feel like a little bit of racial bias towards you from non-black, like um, I guess patients? Like, do they ever have people like complain about you for being a black woman? Um. I think so, most definitely. I mean, the statistics in the UK show that black doctors are, there, there's a, a organization called the GMC, the General Medical Council, and they're the ones who give us our licenses and they do hearings, like if you had a major complaint about you about fitness to practice and whether they're gonna strike you off and say that you can't be a doctor anymore. And the proportion of black doctors, black, Asian, doctors that are taken to hearings about their medical practice is far greater than the proportion of white doctors. So what is that saying? The black doctors are rubbish or there is racism going on? Oh, that's, that's kind of similar with over here. Well, not really similar, but um, I was watching a video and more or less stated, I mean, yeah, I looked at statistics as well, but it was saying that the amount of black men in medical school in 1970s was more than it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, think, yeah. I kind of think, you know, for everybody who is sitting in my seat, we've worked really hard to be where we are. And I do not believe that all the black doctors are bad doctors. Um, I've had patients, black and white, say to me, oh, um, if I had have seen a white doctor, they have, may have done things differently. And I'm thinking, well, that's up to you. If that's how you feel, then go and see a white doctor if that's what you're going to be more comfortable with. But, you know, I have the same qualifications as them. I have the same right. skill as them. So you, I think it's really tough. I think it's really tough being a black female doctor, definitely. I, sometimes I kind of think, hmm, my male colleagues, they can probably get away with saying some things to women or men that I may not be able to get away with. And so for minor things, you're facing a complaint that actually you think, but if I was a different skin color, would that complaint still have happened? You know, there's nothing, people complain about things, but there's actually nothing to hold the complaint really, apart from the fact that they didn't like you. And why didn't they like you? Is it just because you're black? It becomes really difficult to decipher, but I've definitely had moments when I've thought, yeah, this is nothing to do with my medical practice. This is just to do with me and the color of my skin. Mm. And, you know, it kind of, I've had patients who have been directly racist. I've had doctors who unknowingly who've been racist. And I mean, I remember when I was doing my training and the doctor used to have to call when you were in hospital, they used to have to call to say, I've got this patient I'm worried about. Can I admit the patient? And I picked up the phone and the doctor on the other end said, oh, I have this Negro lady here. I was thinking, what? I'm thinking, okay, you're on the phone. You do not know who's going to pick up the other end of the phone. I was so shocked. I like looked at the phone and my senior doctor who was looking after me was a fantastic Asian lady. And I said, hey, this guy has just said this to me on the phone. She was like, what? Give me the phone. He repeated the exact same thing. And, you know, she was like, listen, I don't know who you are, but when you know how to speak about people properly, call us back. And she put the phone down. I was like, OK, uh, that's how you deal with it. Then. Yes. 
Uh, oh think, and this is not like a million years ago. This may have been five years, ten years ago. I had my first job that I did as a doctor. My consultant, like the specialist in charge of everyone's care, was Asian. Her registrar was Indian, Asian, and we had two Chinese um, doctors and then me on a team. So there were no white people on this team and we were in a part of England which is predominantly white and a little old lady said, I don't want any of those type of people looking after me. We were her whole medical team because she was unwell on that day when we were taking in patients. And the wow. consultant said, okay, fine. She said, we've written up her medicine. The nurses are going to look after her. She needs her antibiotics. She needs to stay here. However many days, this is the plan. And then she said to us, none of you go to her until she's going to accept that actually we're in charge of her care and she needs to talk to us and be respectful before she can get out of hospital. So I was like, really? She's really going to do this? And she's like, yeah, the nurses will look after her. If there's an emergency, there's other doctors around, they'll look after her. But we cannot work in this system if people are not going to accept that we are all equal. So we did not look after, We. it was a Monday we started, we made sure all of her medication was okay, everything was okay, the nurses were looking after her. By the Thursday, she was like, oh, nice doctor. I'm really ready to go home. She was like, okay, now you wow. can go. Okay. Nah, and see, I think those powerful it. women showed me how to be, how to not accept that people, you know, how to make, draw your line in the sand about what you are going to ex accept as a doctor, what level of criticism you will take. I mean, my first, the first doctor that I worked with, she was like, you are not here to be their friend. You're there to provide the best quality healthcare. Make sure you do that. Nobody can pull you up if you, if you stick by those guidelines, but you're not there to take people's crap basically and people have to be respectful of you because you're providing them with a service and care that you are dedicated to doing and you've dedicated your life's work to doing so don't take any rubbish from people that's inspiring actually and i think you can also use that in other aspects of your life as well um and not to take any rubbish from anybody um <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm not trying to be I mean it's comical but I'm, I'm being serious like you don't you you stand up for what you believe in and you as long as you know that you're doing what you're supposed to do ethically mm -hmm. nobody can come for you exactly absolutely 